You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to this very special book club event presented by the Wheeler Centre in partnership with M Pavilion. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge that we meet this evening on land stolen from the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations people here this evening. These acknowledgements are always important, but I feel especially so when you consider that the Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri people gathered on these lands for tens of thousands of years to share their stories, just as we're doing this evening. It's really wonderful to see so many of you here tonight for what promises to be a really special discussion, um, sharing a set of reflections by five really excellent writers and critics, followed by the opportunity for you all to share your thoughts on the five books that we'll be talking about this evening, the 2020 Victorian Premier's Literary Awards Fiction Shortlist, which you can see displayed in a beautiful stack over there. My name's Stella Charles. I'm the programming coordinator at the Wheeler Centre and myself and my wonderful colleague, Ronnie Sullivan, programming manager at the Wheeler Centre, are going to host this discussion, introducing all the speakers, the five speakers in turn, and then opening up the floor to questions. Um, but our hope is this feels really informal and you all get an opportunity to ask whatever burning question that you have or share any of your thoughts on any of the books in the shortlist. And if we do run out of time, feel free to stick around and continue to chat and enjoy this beautiful space. We'd like to thank our amazing colleague, Hiroki Kobayashi, who manages the awards and the wonderful team here at M Pavilion for making tonight possible. Um, we also really want to acknowledge the judges in the fiction category this year for their astute and comprehensive judging. Um, in 2020, they were Jay Carmichael, Anna McDonald, Micheline Lee and Elizabeth Flux. These four were tasked with no easy feat. Um, they combed through every work of fiction published in Australia in 2019 to determine the shortlist that we'll be discussing this evening. Uh, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards were inaugurated in uh, 1985 by the Victorian Government to honour literary achievement by Australian writers. The awards are administered by the Willow Centre on behalf of the Premier of Victoria. The winners of the main suite of awards, which is fiction, non-fiction, drama, poetry, writing for young adults and the biennial award for Indigenous writing. Each winner receives $25,000 in prize money and those winners then go on to contest the Victorian Prize for Literature, which is worth $100,000 and is the richest literary prize in Australia. Uh, the winners of each category will be announced on Thursday the 30th of January, but for now we've asked five very clever readers, critics, booksellers, astute lovers of words um, to each make a case for one of the five shortlisted fiction books. And as Stella said, the stack's down there. The five shortlisted books are Act of Grace by Anna Crean, Damascus by Christos Chalkis, Simpson Returns by Wayne McCauley, The House of Yusuf by Yumna Kassab, and The Yield by Tara June Winch. So let's get straight into it. To kick us off, we're going to hear from Chris Somerville on Wayne McCauley's Simpson Returns. Chris is the author of the short story collection We're Not the Same Anymore, and his work has appeared in Best Australian Stories, Paper Radio, Griffith Review, and The Lifted Brow. Take us away, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks. Uh, I, I haven't been out of the house at night in a year since, <laughs> since we had a baby. Um, 
and so I broke curfew to come out here. It's, it's been a beautiful shock. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm here to talk about the very short um, novel or novella, I suppose as you'd like to call it, uh, Simpson Returns by Wayne McCauley. Uh, so 90 years after his death in World War I, Jack Simpson is somehow still alive, sort of, still doing, uh, donning his uniform, still helping the sick, and still trudging alongside his donkey, Murphy. In Wayne McCauley's novella, he's a ghost-like wisp, a cartoon wizard donned in rags with a giant beard who sustains himself on the offerings of locals and his bizarre and misguided search for the inland sea, which he believes is somewhere off in the centre of Australia. This ill-fated adventure is continuously sidetracked when Simpson encounters people in need of his help. Macaulay establishes the rules of the book swiftly enough for it not to become too much of a chore. Not everyone can see Simpson apart from those in need, and Simpson Returns is made up of five of these encounters. A teenage runaway, a refugee, a veteran, a single mother, and a deranged ex-teacher, all of whom share their <laughs> stories with Simpson as they receive his help. But what kind of help can he offer? Part carnival shyster, part holistic nurse, Simpson can only really offer temporary salves and the chance to hear out those that society has failed. Of one patient, he ruminates much later, the scars will heal eventually, perhaps they will pick up where they left off, and perhaps not. The truth is, it was no longer any concern of mine. That was the best that I could do. It's fair to say that I'm kind of the boorish, overread individual who's a real sucker for satire. Um, although there's almost nothing worse than bad satire, much in the same way that it's excruciating to sit next to an uncle who keeps telling you jokes, and when you don't laugh, he says, that's funny. <laughs> Which is a roundabout way of saying that Macaulay avoids this without falling into the trap that a lot of bad satire tends to fall into. With every, when every analogy is sort of a one-for-one one exchange. His targets aren't always so obvious and his message is never that simple. Uh, so in the end, it's hard to pin down exactly what kind of book Simpson Returns is. Like his previous work, Demons, a novel where a group of friends sorry, meet in a holiday house and tell each other long stories, or his last very good book, Some Tests, where a middle-aged woman was shunted endlessly between medical practitioners as they failed to make a diagnosis. Macaulay's particular talent is in etching out the different facets of the Australian class system. He also has a particular fondness for, fondness for the essence of storytelling. His characters love to yarn. Um, sorry for saying that. Um, uh, Simps Jack Simpson's search for an inland sea is mostly a distraction from the more pressing issues at hand. Macaulay's use of an otherworldly narrative to bring real-world problems into focus is Simpson's greatest strength. The help of a ghostly war hero and a donkey offered to those that we seem to unnecess unnecessarily punish or deny help becomes a fitting sorry, analogy for the increasingly cruel Australia in which we currently live. Macaulay's novella has the sheen of a bizarre comedy for sure, but it should also be given credit for being so uncomfortably sad. Thanks. Thank you so much, Chris. Next, we have Cher Tan, who will be reflecting on the House of Yusuf by Yumna Kassab. Cher 
is a writer and critic whose work has appeared in Mianjin, Westerly, The Lifted Brow, Swampland and Overland, among others. She's the author of Cultural Criticism, Food Book Journal, Cooking the Books, which I encourage you to check out, and was Kilia Darling's 2019 New Critic. Would you welcome Cher? Thanks, Stella. One of my favourite things about Yumna Kasab's The House of Yusef is his exterior, a beautiful B format wrapped in a package of quiet simplicity. But the fact of the short stories within it mirroring this understated heft is what intrigues me even more. Vignettes of life of Muslim Lebanese Australian migrants in Western Sydney coalesce into bigger ideas, structural oppression, Islamophobia, trauma and patriarchy lie at the root of this collection. However, they are not the be all and end all. Under the shadow of sometimes difficult circumstances, the book's characters react accordingly. They buckle under pressure, lash out, rebel, resign themselves and yearn for better futures, but mostly they just go on living. The House of Yourself is a bleak book there is no shortage of uncomfortable choices and unhappy characters. The fact that Kassab does not shy away from misery is what makes its collection stand out for me, particularly in a white-dominated literary landscape that still expects feel-good narratives from writers and artists on the so-called margins. The reality of life under white supremacy often means there are few happy endings, but the book doesn't entertain the other extreme trauma porn either. Many stories end on an ambiguous note, a nod to the possible futures that can materialise for each character. There's humour, bitterness, joy, rebellion, regret. In Jose Esteban Munoz's Cruising Utopia, he writes about queering time, envisioning queer futurities and notions of time beyond conventional strictures of years days, weeks, minutes, seconds. In the House of Yusef, this non-static understanding of time is deeply felt. Meaning is derived from current standpoints to create evolving visions of future pasts, determining the relationships different dimensions of time have to a specific moment. In other words, Kassab's characters conceive of time as expansive and non-linear, their corporeality is tied to an assembly of pasts and is a part of many possible futures. There's no knowing, but we can only hope. Like Kafka's shorter work, Kassab's microfiction is irrevocably profound. The mood is set immediately, yet an array of possibilities infused was unspoken by her deft hand with form. Like Grace Paley's stories, the need for a novel is eradicated by character reappearances. Small snippets of these repeat roles sneakily come together to form a larger picture, but only if you read closely enough. And like many of Don DeLillo's characters, the characters in The House of Yusef are stranded in physical and emotional limbo. Their displacement, both a psychological state and a natural reaction to unstable conditions of the world to its crazed structures. There's a lot to be said about how artfully complex this seemingly simple book is. 
The way it weaves multiple narratives about a group of people made so invisibilised, yet are ironically hyper-visible in dominant Australian society. But still, Hassab refuses to assimilate or over-explain them. The existence of books like The House of Yusuf excites me, and its position in the VPLA shortlist, and I hope within the winning alumni, will only open up pathways for a more robust literary landscape, setting an example for new and emerging writers of colour to actualise their realities, politics and imaginations without pandering, without obfuscating, without pussyfooting. We shouldn't even need to have this conversation, but the house of yourself gives me great hope that one day, very soon, we won't. Thanks. Thank you, Cher. Uh, next up, we have Jacqueline Creepy, who will be discussing Act of Grace by Anna Crean. Jacqueline is a bookseller specialising in fiction at Hill of Content Bookshop, just around the corner, and a freelance book editor and project manager. She's written several children's books and has worked in publishing and bookselling since 2002. She's contributed book reviews to Slow Magazine and is one of the best bookstagrammers you will find. <laughs> Thank you, Jacqueline. My claim to fame. <laughs> Um, Anna Crean's debut novel, Act of Grace, is a book as bold and structurally complex as you're likely to find. Crean has written a book of intertwined characters and stories that form a remarkable whole. She's best known for her narrative non-fiction with Into the Woods and Night Games and her quarterly essays, of course. But with Act of Grace, her first novel, she's shown her incredible skill at crafting fiction. Weaving multiple narrative strands together, Crean interrogates the effects and meanings of memory. She focuses her journalistic eye on identity and what we inherit from families, trauma and the violent and complex history of this country. It's a book about wars, both domestic and foreign, both external and those raging within. So I tend to ask a lot of fiction. I want complexity and I want nuance. I want to feel profoundly moved. I want to be challenged. I want to be made to question myself, my assumptions. And I want all that. And then I want the craft of fiction to be on display, but not too much. Don't make it showy, you know, just the right amount. Get it right. Um, I want characters who I can relate to, who I can believe in, characters who can show me something new. Basically what I'm after is to be somehow fundamentally changed by the process of reading a book. I don't ask for much, do I? <laughs> if I'm honest, I almost never get all of these things from the one book. I don't often get that many of them from the one book. But I can say with all honesty, I got all of that from this book. So one of the things I find that, that makes this book so remarkable is the structure. And it's all the characters, countries, conflicts and cultures that Crean works into the narrative. She throws so many narrative strands into the air, moves and rearranges them through time and space, leaves gaps for the reader to fill in, which all us readers love, and then she gets them all to land perfectly. It's an astounding feat of imagination and execution. The breadth and reach of the humanity on, this, on display in this book demands our attention. Those characters, countries, conflicts and cultures that I mentioned earlier are also what makes this book risky and controversial. Crean inhabits an Iraq war veteran, a young Aboriginal girl, an African-American drag queen and an Iraqi pianist turned prostitute. Crean's curiosity about the other 
clearly drives her narrative choices. There were certainly times when I felt uncomfortable reading this book, but that's okay. Interesting things can sometimes happen in discomfort. It makes you think. Ultimately, of course, it's up to each reader to determine how they feel about the representation in this book and whether they think Crean has done the work to render her portrayals sensitively and with care. But as Zadie Smith said, we must always remember what writers are, people with voices in their heads and a great deal of inappropriate curiosity about the lives of others. So tone is also incredibly important to me as a reader. Um, one of my greatest curiosities about the writing process is how authors establish and maintain tone. When you ask them, as I have asked Anna Crean with this novel, they usually cannot answer and indeed she could not. It's completely infuriating. <laughs> so the tone of Act of Grace is loud, it's bold, it's ambitious and it's unflinching. Crean does not shy away from prodding and poking the hypocrisies and the complicity of our leaders and ourselves when looking at Australia's involvement in the Iraq war, our treatment of First Nations people, our attitudes to those who seek refuge on our shores. We are complicit in all this and Crean doesn't want to let us forget it. Crean's characters are all trying to survive systems of oppression, both internal and external. Saddam Hussein's regime, colonisation, identity confusion. We do not have many works of fiction that look at our involvement in the Iraq war, a war predicated on lies and misinformation. Crean's characters force us to confront our own role. They challenge us to see the damage done by policies written in our names. What more can we possibly ask of fiction than this? If I had to find a thread through all of Crean's work to date, it would be navigating through the fog of moral complexity. She is drawn to the grey areas of ambiguity and she never goes for what is easy or safe. She zeroes in on the heart of truth. I admire her tremendously for these reasons. I could have spent my time tonight talking about the quality of her writing, but I think we must take as given that all five works of fiction being discussed tonight are of the highest literary standard, and I would honestly have been happy to be up here talking about any of them. So I just want to end by saying I think we're very lucky to have the VPLA Awards and of course the Wheeler Centre. Um, celebrating the best of Australian fiction in this way is a joy and an honour. Thank you. Thank you, Jacqueline. Next up, we'll hear from Justine Hyde, who's talking about Damascus by Christos Cholkas. Justine is a writer, critic and librarian who lives in Melbourne. Her criticism, essays and short fiction have been published in The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, The Saturday Paper, Mianjin, Lit Hub, Electric Literature and Kill Your Darlings. Would you welcome Justine? Hi everyone, I'm going to start with a true story which is the reason why I read Damascus by Christos Chalkas. Um, I was asked by the Saturday paper to review the book and I've been writing for them for a little while and been writing, uh, they do two lengths of um, book reviews, they do 1300 words and 750 words uh, and all the reviews I'd done up until then were 750 and Ian who's the books editor um, offered me Damascus for a 1300 word review and I was pretty hesitant to review it because I thought, you know, he's a big name in Australian literature and that's all a bit scary. Uh, and I didn't actually think it was a book that appealed to me that much. But I was so excited to do a 1300 word review for the Saturday paper that I said yes. 
So this is why I read the book. I mean, I've read all of his other books as well. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's a book about uh, early Christianity. It's a book deeply steeped in religion. Uh, it's a book that has pretty much exclusively all male characters as the protagonists, except for uh, there's one chapter dedicated to Lydia, uh, but every other voice is a male voice. So kind of on face value, it's not a book I'd necessarily have uh, rushed to. I probably would have gotten to it eventually, uh, but it wouldn't have been top of my reading pile. So I guess I went into it a little bit um, with a little bit of hesitation, um, both because I didn't think I'd necessarily enjoy it, but also because I had to review it and I was scared. Um, but it was such an amazing experience to read the book and a completely different, um, I guess, a, a different book to what I expected in that. Uh, I mean, typical of Christos, it's very ambitious, uh, it's very bold, it's very brave, uh, it's also very brutal, um, but it, it's just sort of dripping with humanity. Uh, and the thing that I found really fascinating about it is it gives you this insight into early Christianity, which is a, a subject I know nothing about, uh, and sure, it's historical fiction. He does take liberties with kind of fact, but it is deeply researched. But the thing that really struck me was the way that he brought out the kind of the deep humanity and philosophy of early Christianity, which was all about equality uh, and all about inclusiveness and about, um, I guess, treating everyone the same, whether you were um, a slave, a woman, a prostitute, um, all these people at the time were treated terribly, um, you know, to the point where slaves weren't even spoken to and prostitutes weren't spoken to uh, and there's a whole kind of social order around who you could and couldn't interact with. Uh, and Christianity, which was, you know, basically a break-off kind of weird, crazy sect from Judaism, um, their main sort of philosophy was around inclusiveness and equality. Uh, and at the time that was quite radical and what Christos does uh, really successfully is to show the kind of risk that these people took in being part of this crazy offshoot sect uh, and the, the kind of social and cultural uh, consequences that they faced as a result. So he really brings to life that um, period of time in all its kind of brutality, uh, in all of its kind of bloodiness, um, it's, there's a lot of kind of sex and murder and blood and rotting fruit and shit and it's really visceral and brutal. Um, and through all of that, and, and you know, some of it is actually quite difficult to read, it's quite brutal. Uh, um, through all of that, what he really shows is how this small group of people who really believed for whatever reason in the teachings of Jesus kind of banded together and... Um, and kind of, I guess, push through those social boundaries. Uh, and there's a, a really interesting author's note that he has at the end of the book, which is about his relationship to the letters of St. Paul. And the book is based on the letters of St. Paul, and Paul is one of the main characters, or the main character. And what Christos says is, is through his whole life, he's been wrestling with um, the letters of St. Paul and feeling uh, like he, he can't uh, interact with them because of his sexuality. And the book, I think, is probably his... Well, I would say it's his finest book, absolutely, because I think what it is is the culmination of a whole lot of uh, topics and issues and wrestling with um, his own sexuality and wrestling with religion 
to come to some kind of acceptance of himself in the framework of religion and spirituality, not necessarily in sort of institutional religion, but in uh, you know the the philosophy and the underpinning humanity of Christianity. So, I mean, for someone who was brought up an atheist and knows nothing about religion uh, and doesn't really read heaps of books by blokes and particularly doesn't read books that feature mainly men, uh, for it to win me over, I think, is a big thing. Um, and, yeah, the book's told from a number of perspectives um, and, it, you know, it, it kind of plays around the edges of the same topics that Christos normally tackles, which are things like... Um, politics and sexuality, um, class, masculinity. So it's, I mean, if you've read his other books, you'll, you'll be familiar with the themes, but I think uh, he's done a magnificent job of creating this world, this historical world, uh, and really um, kind of steeping the reader in understanding what it must have been like to live then and also what, what it would have been like to be part of early Christianity um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing book. That's my pitch. <laughs> Go read it. Vote for it. Thank you so much, Justine. Uh, finally, we're going to hear from Bridget Caldwell-Bright, who'll be speaking about The Yield by Tara June Winch. Bridget is a Jingly Mudborough writer and editor. She works as co-editor for Archer magazine, as well as literary journal The Lifted Brow. And she was previously the managing editor for Black Brow, a black women's collective edition of The Lifted Brow. Please welcome Bridget. that better? Okay. So first time I've been introduced is my married name. <laughs> That's really funny. Also feels like I'm a traitor to feminism or whatever. But, um, <laughs> um, so thanks everyone for coming and for having me. Um, I just want to acknowledge the uh, Wurundjeri and Bunuram people of the land which I'm standing on today. Um, I acknowledge my ancestors, also the Jingli Mudurra people, um, as I am a woman living off country and working off country. Um, obviously, it's really important for us to acknowledge um, the land which we're on, um, especially because I'm going to be talking about a book that centres so strongly around country and place. Um, and I take very seriously my privilege to be here today um, being off country. So, yeah, just really want to pay respects to um, to the people of the Kulin Nation. Um, so I'm talking about Tara June Winch's The Yield. Um, the story is set around a grandfather dying, a grandfather, a granddaughter returning home and a fight over land rights, so not much going on, um, <laughs> but intertwined with the themes of loss, love, family, language, grief, um, as well as these really powerful accounts of dispossession and violence, um, home and country. So there are three different voices narrating the yield. We have Albert Kundawindi, um, through his dictionary of words he writes before passing away. Uh, the missionary, Reverend Greenleaf, who is retelling a past, and Albert's granddaughter, August, who returns home from England after her grandfather passed away. So the different perspectives from these three people introduce us to life where the family live, um, this fictional town of Massacre Plains. Um, so the way which, the way in that Winch tells the story through this way it makes it hard to get used to at first, um, but it's ultimately really enriching and rewarding. So she's able to guide the reader through this really complex history of recounting of events through the eyes of these three different characters, but without 
complicating the narrative or thinning any of the stories in any way. Um, the book's not sure on retelling the horrors of history of the town, mostly through the eyes of the reverend, uh, who tells the stories of violence that he had to bear witness to while living on this mission. But what I feel like I wanted to talk to about most and what sort of spoke to me most was this idea of home in the book. So the scenes where August um, is with her grandmother, Elsie, are some of the most raw and beautiful scenes in the book. A bond between a grandparent and a grandchild is one of the most surreal relationships to bear witness to, having now seen this with my daughter and my mum. Winch is able to write you into the scenes in which makes you feel like you're in the kitchen with August and Elsie. It reminded me of my nana and the time spent with her in the kitchen cooking dumplings with golden syrup. <laughs> Looking back now, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Potato salad with green apples and beef stew. And these are the memories for me that evoke a feeling of home. There's a scene in the book where the family are conducting ceremony to farewell Albert and August is overcome with emotion. She's described with her hands dry on the flat earth and her eyes blinded by tears. She felt as if she were back home, back on the land which she belonged to, but at the same time she thought this was the saddest place on earth. So I've been thinking a lot about home lately after reading this book and what that means to me. The book really made me reflect very deeply um, about this, which doesn't usually happen from a lot of writing. Um, and I've come to realise that I've got many homes. So I have my home country, Jingli Mudra country. Uh, that's actually on the front line of ongoing colonial violence at the moment, about to be opened up to shale gas fracking. So soon I may not be able to return there. Um, there's a country where I was born and grew up. Uh, Nunga country in South Australia, which I haven't returned there since my grandparents passed away almost 10 years ago, which is something I didn't also realise until I read this book. Um, and then there's where I live now in Nam, the place that has been my home for over 15 years, where I lay my head at night, where I work, um, where my family is safe and supported. The loss of my grandparents meant a loss of a generation and a loss of song lines, and it hurts to think of that knowledge being lost, but one of the best things my nana ever did was write her stories, her poetry and her knowledge, just as Albert Gondawindi had done in this book. So I think after reading this book, I have an urgency now to write stories that maybe I didn't think were necessary. Um, and it has been, in all senses of the word, inspiring to me. It has done what all good fiction should do and has funda fundamentally changed something in me. Um, and I just want to end by reading two words from the book, uh, from Albert Gondawindi's dictionary. Um, these words are in Wiradjuri, so they're not my language, so I'm doing so in respect to that language, but I just think they're really beautiful to reflect on. Uh, so the first is Nalamara, which means fishing, and in Albert's dictionary he says, the songlines of our ancestors follow water like markers on a highway. Many fish are endangered now. Don't take the perch, don't take the grayling. No freshwater cod from up north, no jolly tail, no gudgeon. Never buy fish from the food mart or the restaurant or Nemo's fish and chip shop. You want it, you catch it. Everyone should learn four things. How to nullamara, how to love someone boundlessly, how to grow your own vegetable and how to read. I just think that's really beautiful. And then the other one um, is maru, which means marks or tracks or impressions. And he says, this is, uh, this is the tracks the snakes, the goanna, the birds and us make as we cross the world. We all leave Moru behind, so leave a gentle one. Mm. 
Thank you so much, Bridget. And thanks all of you for sharing your reflections. Um, I'm just going to do something really daggy, so excuse me, but I'm really curious if um, you could just raise your hand if you've read one of the books from the shortlist so far. <laughs> all of you guys is given. And if anyone, keep your hand up if you've read more than like two or more, just out of curiosity if anyone's. Cool. It's good to know. Um, all right. We're going to uh, – Ronnie and I have quite a few questions, but we'll just open up with a question for the panel um, while you all think if you have anything to ask them or any comments you'd like to make on anything that you've read. Um, once you do raise your hand, please wait for a microphone to come to you. We're going to walk one around um, just because we are recording the audio from this this evening. Um I first, I wanted to start, you all read so widely and I think if we combined all your reading taste, um, it would be a pretty vast uh, cross-section of everything that's published. I'm really curious if any of you can speak to the trends that you've seen emerging in Australian fiction and whether you think that any of the shortlisted books um, reflect any of those writing or publishing trends or defy them. If anyone, Jacqueline seems ready. No, no. <laughs> I, I just got past a microphone. I gave mine away. <laughs> Does anyone have a... F okay. Um, so I feel the shortlist doesn't reflect current Australian publishing trends. I think it's the, the, they're all sort of bucking what I would consider what we're seeing the most of. Um, and I think that's a that's a good thing. Um, I mean, Christos Soukis is the only person I think who could get away with writing the history of Christianity fictionalized, and it would sell well, and people would review it well. And I mean, it's an ex it's a masterpiece, and um, I don't think a debut novelist is going to touch that. Um, I think Tara June Winch and her reclamation of language is the most important Australian novel published last year. Um, and we're not, we're not seeing enough um, in Indigenous fiction. We need to see more. And I think there will be more, but we need a lot more. And we need people like Tara June Winch to be supported. Um, and because her career is just going to be an extraordinary thing. It already is. And then short stories are very hard. I'm talking from a bookselling point of view. I love short stories, but they are very hard. And The House of Yusuf is an extraordinary collection. Um, and it is a challenging and bleak one. And I thought you talked about it so beautifully. I felt I got so much more out of it hearing you talk about it. Um, and then novellas, no one's writing novellas. What Wayne McCauley is doing, I've got no idea, but I love it. <laughs> so, and obviously I've said everything I have to say about Anna Crean and Act of Grace. Um, I think it was a bumper year for Australian fiction. Like I could talk about this all night. Actually, I've got to stop. That's it. <laughs> Does anyone want to add anything? <laughs> do we have any audience questions? Just do raise your hand and Hiroki will bring you a microphone. If, if you have any questions or if you just have any thoughts about if you've read one of the books or, you know, or not and you just want to share anything, it's very much open for discussion. Um, but maybe just to follow on for another question for our illustrious panel. Um, if you were leaving aside the fact that we can presume that many of you are probably speaking about maybe your favourite from the list or one that you particularly love. If you were to place a bet based on what books tend to win prizes, what book do you think would be, you, do you think is going to win the, the, the award for fiction? <laughs> I think if you went based on statistics, you'd think Christos, um, but I reckon Tara June Winch will win and should. 
I, I can't say anyone but Tara because yeah. I might never get to work. <laughs> she might blacklist me from everything. Um, but I do think like the that she wrote so well about language and forces you to think about Australia that we live in today from quite a different perspective that we're not used to and like quite similar to like what Melissa Lukashenko and like Kim Scott have written about in their books but there's just something about the, the way she writes from these characters that I think is like just so different and yeah so she's definitely my top pick. Anyone else? I mean if you think about like a prize winning book what the, whatever that means is that a particular kind of book and is are any of these books that kind of book? Oh. I'd like it if the short stories won, but they probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as a short story writer. Yeah. <laughs> um, at, from what I've heard, the Tara June Winch book sounds like a pretty strong contender. Mm. Um, I haven't read any of the other books on the shortlist, unfortunately, so I'm not the best person to ask. Um, <laughs> I once almost hit Christos Tolkis with my car. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Killed the national treasure. <laughs> But I was pointing him out. I was like, I think that's Chris. Oh, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then almost drove over him. Um, so he doesn't need to win. <laughs> He's already really lucky. Yeah, he, he cheated death. That's yeah. another. I think you've like probably raised a bigger question there, is like, mm. what is a literary prize, and like, what constitutes a literary prize, and who, you know, obviously we have judges and panels that decide who gets here, but I guess it's like a big conversation to have about going forward, like what the literary prize world looks like in mm. Australia, I guess. I think that's that's so true. And I mean, I, I think the yield, I think Tara June Winch will, will win and I, that's my pick. Um, but I think any of them could win. You know, I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting shortlist. It's unexpected and it's exciting. And maybe it's not useful necessarily to be thinking about that angle, the, the external angle of like what does it mean in the in the literary scene or in the prize-winning world, um, rather than just looking at well what's b between the covers is kind of it, it has to come back to that, doesn't it? When you put four people in a room and what they're going to pick, I never get prize predictions right. I'm always wrong. So who knows? Wayne McCauley's got it in the bag, I think. <laughs> I mean, sort of fluctuated over the past few years. I mean, you, you had short stories, I think, 2017, Australia Day. Yeah. Um, and then last year was No Friend But a Mountains. So, <laughs> yeah. I would that say... The, yeah, that was the non-fiction. Yeah. What won the fiction prize last year? Uh, the um, the House oh, of... Yeah. Uh, what's it? The Italian... Madonna, Madonna, the Madonna of the Mountain. Of the mountain. Yeah. yeah. What? Yes, <laughs> that's a fantastic book. And <laughs> um, we have a question from the audience. Yes. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the how they judge these awards and who is on the panel. So, could you explain that? And also, I, I'm probably asking a question that might sound a little jaded, but is there any kind of oh, they think this year we need to have this sort of theme. Like the Oscars. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because the Oscars really fill their diversity quota every year. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a really great question and I think there is a lot of mystery 
about what goes on behind the scenes or it's not necessarily the what's foregrounded in the conversation for good reason because it should be about the books. But um, certainly for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, the judges are chosen by the Wheeler Centre and then they're very independent in their process beyond that. Um, and we generally try and have a mix of perspectives on the judging panel. So we usually try and have a mixture of like critics, writers, booksellers, people who are in the industry and who are astute readers, but not necessarily high-profile people. We just want people who are passionate about books and who um, perhaps represent slightly, a slight mixture of tastes as well, not kind of like stacking it with, um, for instance, not stacking the, the history judging, uh, sorry, the, the non-fiction judging panel with history buffs or, you know, there's like lots of different ways to kind of get that balance right. And so we did, um, Stella mentioned the, the names of this year's judges at the beginning. So this year's judges are Jay Carmichael, who's a young um, fiction writer who was shortlisted last year, uh, Anna McDonald, who's a bookseller, Micheline Lee, who's also a novelist who was shortlisted a couple of years ago, and Elizabeth Flux, who's a writer, an editor um, and a critic. So again, a bit of a mix mix of ages, mix of kind of their own predilections. Um, yeah, and then they're, they're kind of, you know, given that they're, they're, they're chosen for their astute judgment and then they're trusted to execute that judgment um, with great discretion. And Jacqueline, in fact, was a judge yes, in yeah. a, a few years ago. Yeah, so I've been a judge of the Fiction Prize and it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, so you come to it with a lot of weight. You've, you, you're sent boxes of books. You've got to read them all. You've got to give them the time they deserve. And then you m multiple times get in a room with other people who completely disagree with you and you battle it out. And I can't probably talk about much about what happens in that room, but it's a lot happens in that room. And each time you come to it, you go away and you read again and then you come back to that room and you talk about it again and then you go away and you read again. And you come. So you can read the same book three times and... Um, come away feeling wildly different about it for positive or negative really it can go either way but um, I think judges take it very seriously and we are you know told to look for literary excellence which does sort of set a very high standard um, but I think you put four different people in all the rooms given the exact same books you'll get different long lists you'll get different short lists you'll get different winners it's up to the judges and how those discussions unfold and perhaps that sort of addresses the second part of your question about whether there's a desire to balance it out. My feeling is that generally those are, that's such a small part of the many, many things in the contention and in the conversation that um, the, the literary excellence is always going to outweigh, oh, but we haven't had a debut writer in a while or, you know, and trying to juggle those other elements is kind of a mm. fool's game. You really do need to be all willing to defend and stand up and jump up and down for the book you pick and you, you have to be really excited about it to pick it as the winner, it, even to get it on the shortlist. And you, you have to, you know, come to an agreement. And it's hard. But I think I, I personally feel, having read the winners over the past however many years, you know, great books win this prize. Um, kind of, is there another question? Yeah, you've got one. Go for it, go for it. Hello. Oh, look at that. Um, yeah, this was just a question off the previous question, I guess. There have been some pretty aggressive cuts to arts funding. I don't think there's an industry in the arts that hasn't felt the changes to the Australia Council over the past um, five or so years. And there have also been some 
publishing shake-ups at some of the big houses uh, of editors and of ownership. So I just wanted to, bearing that in mind, I just wanted to ask you guys again to speak about the role of literary prizes generally and the role of the Wheeler Centre in bolstering, you know, the things that are sacred about our cultures. Yeah. That might have been a bit of a leading question. <laughs> I think it's really important to note that the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards have been consistently supported by the state government since 1985, bilaterally. It's an amazing thing that there's this vote of confidence coming from the Victorian government that's like ongoing, and that's not necessarily always the case. I mean, a couple of years ago, the Queensland Literary Awards were turfed by the Liberal state government um, and then the, the local community, literary community, started a grassroots campaign to try and raise money so they could keep holding their state literary awards. So we're very lucky to have that government support for these particular awards. Um, in terms of the, the role of literary prizes, I, I think that it's the sales boost is really important. And maybe um, Chris or Jacqueline, who've both worked in bookstores, might be able to speak about what, it, what the impact is if, if a book's won a prize and someone's coming in wanting to buy a book, whether that impacts the decision-making process at all? Uh, usually it does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to give a short answer, but yeah, it, they, they do have an effect um, uh, on sales in that way, yeah. yeah. I don't some know how more to than others. On that yeah, one. some prizes more than others as well. There's yeah, yeah lots of prizes everyone out buys there. the Booker. Yeah. And the Miles Franklin. And the Miles yeah. Franklin, definitely. Stella. And the Stella, definitely in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Does anyone else have thoughts on the arts funding landscape, the publishing landscape. I just wanted to mention my joy in remembering when you mentioned the Queensland Literary, the Premier's Literary Awards getting cut by Campbell Newman, uh, who then subsequently, a couple of years later, wanted to get his um, autobiography <laughs> published. And uh, no publisher would take it on because of what he'd done to the Queensland Literary <laughs> <laughs> Awards. So that's karma, I think. I think he self-published it, didn't he, with a really I think did. not very good cover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who would read it anyway? But, you know, that's karma. Thank you so much to uh, everyone. Um, in speaking about each of your books, um, it's so enormously challenging to condense what you want to say in just a few minutes. Um, and I could see the focus. Hello. Um, I, I could see the focus on you know, all of your faces. Um, is there, now that you've each spoken and then heard the others speak about their book, has that triggered something that you really wanted to say about yours? Uh, are there other kind of thoughts about your books that are just itching to get out? I know that always happens to me in, 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 in your situation. Or maybe not. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I haven't read any of the other books, but now I really want to read them. <laughs> We've all sold it. <laughs> I think how Jacqueline was saying about like how fiction or like how a book should change you and has to be all these things has made me reflect on like maybe how I'm going to read the next book that I read. Like I think you've like instilled something in me now that I'm like, oh, like sometimes. <laughs> no, it's great because sometimes I go on Goodreads and I'm like, yeah, four, I don't know, four stars, maybe whatever. And like maybe the book was not that great, but I just don't know how to kind of like reflect that deeply on it but now like you may be giving me these other ways to think about it and like you know I know that I saw these things in Tara's book about 
how it changed me and how it forced me to reflect. And I think that's what a good book should do. So now I'm maybe expecting more from the next book I read. Yeah. Actual recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> you no, no, not right now. <laughs> we'll talk later. I've got some ideas. Any other audience questions, comments, thoughts? Hi, um, I'm just sneakily getting some work research in here, but um, would you recommend the book that you read for book clubs? Because I feel like that's a different question to yes, would you recommend it true. to an individual? Um, so I'd love to know. Undoubtedly, so for me. Undoubtedly. Yeah. I think I think you'd have to be a pretty brave book club <laughs> to take on Christos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. There's rape and murder and it's very brutal and it definitely wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea, but it would definitely make for fascinating conversation. Um, and I can imagine it would result in wildly divergent views. Yeah. So that's kind of what a good book club yeah. is. So probably. Yeah. I'd say 100% for Act of Grace. I think, I, I think it's a divisive book. You'll have a good chat. There's a lot to talk about in there. Um. Uh, I'm in a book club where you can only go if you've actually read the book. So I would say yes, because it's so short. Like, if you don't, if you don't read 120 pages, like, what are you doing? Um, um, and it's hilarious, too. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go, go. No, I don't have anything. Um, I think based on, like, the dictionary that Tara includes alone, probably yes. Just because I think there's, like, lots to talk about there. It, it's not, like... I don't, say, I don't think it's a, like a divisive book in any way, but I think it's like sparks brilliant conversation and like reflectiveness and yeah, I just think like there's, because at the back of it, she's actually included like a, a full basically Wiradjuri dictionary. Um, so I just think everyone should read that based on that. But yeah, for a book club for sure. Are you all part of a book club? You all came together? That's so <laughs> nice. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's really sweet. Your next five books are chosen. <laughs> I don't have a book club. No one wants oh. to start a book club with me. So, <laughs> I'll join. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm taking applications. So. Are there any more audience questions? I have one. I, um, just off the back of what Esther was asking in terms of, like, the pressure to speak when you only have a few minutes about something that you love, you all work. Um, in different capacities as reviewers, do you find um, and ins we kind of asked you to give a review tonight. Do you do you find that task much more onerous when you adore something? Do you think it's harder to do that job well when you it really resonates with you and you need to communicate that without gushing? I guess yeah. I th I find that harder than criticizing things sometimes. I wonder how you all feel. Yeah, I, I think for me it's really hard because I feel like I have a responsibility to um, support like other Indigenous writers um, and also with that comes like a different kind of critiquing. Like I feel like maybe I'm the only person that's like allowed to critique it in this way but again with like, yeah, with that comes like this huge responsibility that I have to nurture it in like such a different way that I would from like a non-Indigenous author. Like I take the stories very like personally and I think especially with like a story like The Yield where it's you know I can resonate so much with so many of the characters and many of the scenes that it's sort of yeah it is harder because it'd be easy for me to be critical and be like yeah this part was shit or you know whatever like in you know much more of a nuanced way obviously but <laughs> um yeah it 
it is hard because, um, yeah, just take it really personally and, and I want to, like, nurture that story in a really kind of, like, beautiful way. So, yeah. And I think that's, like, come from my role as, like, being an editor and working with other, you know, Indigenous stories is, like, there's a way that you have to kind of work that that is, um, yeah, really personable, I guess. I reckon it's harder to write negative reviews and I always wish I could do a little preface at the beginning of a negative review and say, you're fucking amazing because you wrote a book and you should get a trophy for having something published and please don't be offended that I don't love it. <laughs> and also, uh, I mean, if you're reviewing books in Australia, you're largely reviewing Australian books. Mm. And uh, so if you come to something like the VPLAs, there's bound to be people there whose books you've reviewed negatively and that can be kind of awkward. <laughs> so I'd rather write a gushing review. <laughs> yeah, I actually don't like writing gushing reviews because I'm generally generally quite a negative person. <laughs> <laughs> I think of everyone, you're the most critical. Even if you like loved, loved the book, you'll find like one thing where you're like, but actually they could have done this. And, and full disclosure, yeah. I reviewed The House of Yourself for the Sally paper like Justine did. And when I was assigned the book, I knew nothing about it. And I was like, oh, another diaspora book. Are you, you know, <laughs> matching me with them because this is the way it goes. Mm -hmm. But I was, you know, really surprised by it. And it was, yeah, that's why I'm endorsing it so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's hard to... It seems a lot that either you really hate something or you really love it. And it's really hard to, like, pin that in-between thing. Kind of like it's really hard to talk about fondness for stuff right. like fondness of something, and I don't. It's I don't review books that often, um, just because I don't really enjoy it that much. Um, but sometimes I don't know if I'm a stupid reader or something. But it's like I'll read something and then I'll just forget about it for like months and months, and then like maybe later it'll ping back into my head. Like I had that with. Outline by Rachel Cusk, mm. which I, I thought I hated it, and then I thought about it again and again for like months. So, and then you're like, oh, I guess I liked it. So <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I think that's called like, <laughs> like first year of parenthood. Yeah. You like it takes <laughs> you a few months well. to like. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was the first book I read when um, my baby was born, actually, because it was so short. Yeah. So I was like, I have to finish. Your something. attention spans like yeah. hundred pages max. <laughs> Yeah, and I think your feeling when it comes to reading something changes all the time. Like yeah. sometimes when you read, you know, this book and you hate it and then you go back to it later with a different mood and your feelings change. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I, I reread this for this and I loved it more than I read when I read it the first time, which never happens. <laughs> and that sort of resonated. I'm like, actually, this is even better than I thought it was. And then I really wanted to figure out why. Um, and I agree, I, I could write a thousand words about why I love something, but to really nail why I dislike something, and especially when you're reviewing in a public space, the author can potentially see this review. They've spent years working on this thing. And so you don't want to be callous, but again, I use Instagram as my, and so I also don't want to write a thousand words about it. So you just sort of balance it, and I always get that balance quite wrong. But it's much easier to write a positive... It's much easier to love something than it is to identify what it is that's not working and why. Does anyone have any questions before we wrap up? 
you're also very welcome to stick around and continue chatting. And I'm sure um, if you approach any of the people on this panel, they won't run away from you <laughs> if you want to keep pick up on any of the threads. Um, thank you all so much for sharing all your thoughts with us this evening. Thank you to the brilliant team at M Pavilion for hosting us and for supporting the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Thanks to all of you for coming along. Um, yeah, please continue to enjoy the space. And would you all finally join us in thanking Chris, Cher, Jacqueline, Justine and Bridget once more. Cheers. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.